You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. We, we want to imagine the best, but even trying to get good to happen is a lot of hard work. The compromises, the back and forward, you know, the gritty business of, uh, you know, you never want to see how sausages are made. Um, same goes for politics, really. This event was presented in partnership with the inaugural Mountain Writers Festival as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. During Spring Fling, the Wheeler Centre went to Macedon in partnership with Mountain Writers Festival for a detailed and diverting conversation between musician and environmentalist Peter Garrett and award-winning author and journalist Anna Crean. Together, they reflect on Garrett's incredible life of environmental activism and the role art, politics and campaigning can play in creating positive, lasting change. Hello. I uh, just wanted to say that Massive Ranges is located on the country of the Jajavarong people uh, and it's a Wurundjeri country of the Woiwurrung uh, language group. And um, I'm very, very happy and honoured to be here. Uh, I was thinking about how to introduce Peter Garrett, because it's not as if you don't know him. Uh, And Dolly Parton came to mind. (laughs) Striking physical. Nine to five, I'm I'm trying. But, like Dolly, uh, Peter is a powerhouse, huge generosity of spirit, hard-working, unafraid to disappoint a fan base, knows what needs to be done, Uh, and Midnight Oil, like Dolly, had this amazing ability to pull in such a diverse range of people. Uh, You've got your your rock kids, your adrenaline-filled surfers, you've got um, activists, you've got your rat bags, you've got everyone there. You've got your, your people in the shirts and ties. Uh, ev- everyone is at a Midnight Oil concert in a way that you don't see uh, in any other you know, Australian band that is an institution. Uh, so Dolly did come to mind. <laughs> um, but let's start from the beginning. I want to introduce Peter um, before we really get down to the the meat of the matter. Uh, Born in 53, Peter grew up in the sleepy northern uh, suburbs of Sydney, enjoyed a free-range childhood, which, by the way, if you want to get into this, this is the book to be reading. Um, Kicking around quarries, exploring the bush, building rafts. In high school, was constantly pulled up for chatting in class. Letterboxd, vote for Labor, pamphlets with his mum. Moved to Canberra to study arts uh, when the anti-apartheid protests were taking place across the country. Definitely didn't smoke dope with Nick Mitchin. (laughs) Returned to Sydney to study law at the University of New South Wales, where the founding dean was none other than Hal Watton, who is um, perhaps best known for one of his foundation roles in the first Aboriginal uh, legal service and as a commissioner in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, in this book, Peter writes, it felt like an institution with a beating heart. In amongst this was surfing, hard-working beginnings of what is now a household name, Midnight Oil, a, bub, pub, a band that started in the pub scene, sweaty, adrenaline-fueled, kinetic sound, and the message was strident. It was no ordinary band. Both music and musicians were absolutely unyielding. Anti-establishment, defying promoters, covering up advertisements and venues, raising money for Aboriginal rights, protecting the whales, Tibet, street kids, you name it. So by the late 70s, people were starting showing up for the music and for the politics. Uh, The band even produced little mini newspapers called Oil Rats uh, to raise awareness. And at the heart of every thumping song was a defiant protest and a call to act. Uh, from pubs to benefit concerts to the global stage where public phone boxes would be installed on stage for Peter to pause mid-act and put a call in to Parliament or the White House. Sometimes people picked up, poor, poor 
more people. <laughs> so three decades, over a dozen top ten albums, several worldwide hits. It's enough in itself to be a life. Uh, it's enough in itself to be a single memoir. But for Peter, it wasn't enough. There was work to be done. Um, Co-founded the Nuclear Disarmament Party, ran, ran for Senate in 1984, then became an environmental lobbyist, uh, serving two terms as president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, which was actually um, came about when Joe Bjorki Peterson, Premier of Queensland, decided it would be good to start drilling the Great Barrier Reef for oil. Um, and Garrett's leadership at the ACF was you know, absolutely significant and saw many important uh, additions to environmental protection areas and the ACF grew into what is now one of the leading institutions for environmental protection. Then in 2004, Peter entered Parliament. Uh, as journalist Brett Evans wrote, he could opt for an easy life on the sidelines of St Peter, or he could take the less travelled road into the heart of power. And perhaps I think this is a good place to begin. So thank you, Peter, for being here. Anna, great pleasure. <laughs> a little chat before and we were talking about um, art and change and midnight oil as I've mentioned it could have been that could have been it right like that could have been it you could have and you could have felt like you'd done tick the box you've, you've done you're a good person um, you know God's gonna go yep yep sweet you're in um, but it wasn't enough and we talked about what what what, what role does art have in in this environmental crisis that we're currently in, the biodiversity crisis, climate change, what can, what, where does art sit in this, in this spectrum? Well, it's a really good question, and I think part of the answer is that it fits as a subject matter for artists to work on, to think about, and to create. Uh, and so you are seeing more and more art which is reflective of where we are at the moment in terms of climate and the environment and the big pressures and stresses that are there, uh, you then see it at the next, uh, in, a, in another way, if artists themselves get together mm. and coordinate their activities to lobby for change or to be advocates for a particular issue. Uh, and then you'll see it finally if um, individually or together they decide to actually get involved in formal politics or even informal politics working with NGO organisations or, uh, God forbid, even entering the parliament. So um, politicians don't, as a rule, sit inside of parliament um, any, in any different way to people sit inside the pub or you know, sit outside the school picking up their kids or sit in a workplace, well, pre-COVID anyway, um, hanging out and doing things. They're no different. And most of them are not particularly... Um, locked into the art world and creativity and what's happening. They'll have things that they like and some will be a bit more interested than others. But they will certainly notice an artist if they front up uh, and talk to them about something or, or even come and you know, sort of push an idea around for them. Where the arts doesn't succeed is when it's only self-referential and when it's all about the artist, um, which obviously some art is. And in that sense, it just becomes a, um, a closed loop of, of um, outrage and sort of concern, genuinely felt, no doubt, by the person, but not actually heading in any direction. And having been lucky enough to be in a band with artists, and it's very kind of you to roll through some of the things in the introduction, but I think one of the key things for me, yarning to people about it, is that I wouldn't have been able to do what I did, particularly at ACF, if I wasn't uh, in a band with great songwriters, you know, people who really, A, supported that activity, but also could generate such a lot of what we needed to do as a band. So it was very much a team. Yet, I know from my artistic colleagues and other artists that artists tend to think of politics as a slightly... Well, to, to begin with, some people just simply say, well, they're just politicians, they're a, a subhuman species, um, which which is a common enough sentiment, 
but which is not really um, a better reflection of, of the reality. And the second thing is that they express themselves with imagination, which is beautiful, uh, but quite often it's an, an, an imagination which has a utopian sort of glow around it. Uh, and politics is not utopian. Uh, we, we want to imagine the best, but even trying to get good to happen is a lot of hard work. The compromises, the back and forward, you know, the gritty business of, uh, you know, you never want to see how sausages are made. Um, same, same goes with politics, really. And, uh, and artists are not that good at that stuff. That's because of artists. They're good at what they do, so. And I guess, I mean, that was something very much that you had to wear when you had the opposition throw lyrics across the divide at them. Your own, your own lyrics, your own songs, which are unyielding in a way. You know, that, you know Midnight Oil was, was, is absolutely strident in its message. And then, is, is that something that you think maybe you would... Is there, is there a place for arts to become more nuanced and less... Uh, Sort of less. Um, this is only one way, or this is the only, there is no compromise. Or is that really important to take such a huge mass of people with you on the journey where something does need to be done? Uh, it's a complex, um, thoughtful question. So thank you for it. But I think the answer might surprise people a bit, and may even surprise you, Anna. So the truth of it is that we really don't care so much about um, where the message goes. And we're not really caring so much about its stridency or, or otherwise, simply because, in a way, it's the artistic expression. Mm. And you express it, and then you give it to the world, and then whatever happens to it, happens to it. And that's the same. Once a, once a painting and a work's created and it's on the wall in a gallery somewhere, you listen to half a dozen people come and look at the work, and you'll hear half a dozen different responses to that piece of work. The artist doesn't or shouldn't slit their wrists if some of the interpretations are nothing as they intended. Mm. So the same goes for, for creating music and art, except with yours, which is why your question's so challenging, is it's a little different because we're not talking about just imaginative work. Mm. We are having extremely clear um, political views in them, but they're just our views. And we're not... And we never have presumed as to whether people should agree, disagree, um, or, or even think it's the most important thing about what the band is saying or doing, which is why we have the surfers and we have the kids and we have working people and we have people from stockbroking firms and everyone in between. Because everyone takes the bit of the band that they like and they don't like the politics that much. That, that's not a problem for us. What does happen, and I think for me at least, what, what is the final bit of the answer to your question though is that the politics was so important to me and the messages were so important to me that I then wanted to go and do more stuff about it, to try and be useful, to try and be helpful, uh, to use my legal skills and, and organisational skills and advocacy skills such as they were, and to be in places where the sort of things that we had sung about, we could actually see some change taking place. Yeah, absolutely. And so do you think part of the problem is when people... Uh, do throw lyrics back at you whilst you're in Parliament um, in a very different place, in a very different process, is a real lack of understanding of, say, the intersection um, between activism and politics and what, what you know, how one goes about creating change and all the different cogs and wheels to that. Is that something that you, you observe when you did sort of hear those kind of things? Is, there's a failure of understanding about what needs to be done or how things work. So I didn't expect our political opponents to understand or care too much for the lyrics anyway. And if they chose to make fun of them, to be honest, that was almost like the 101 of politics, really. Because on the one hand, they insulted everybody that liked the lyrics. And on the other hand, they showed you that they didn't understand them anyway. So I, I, I wasn't too perturbed about it. But I think underneath this question lies the reality is that the, the, the forums, the settings are very different. And uh, it's not a place for art. I mean, Havel, the, the, the great playwright, became the president of what, Czechoslovakia, I think, from memory? Yeah. And he had the same problem. <laughs> 
but he just tried to be a good president yeah. and ignored the silly things that people said about his plays. <laughs> so, uh, in that sense, I mean, that would sort of lead me to my next sort of... I think what was, I found really interesting is the Australian Conservation Foundation was founded with this, um, protecting the Great Barrier Reef in mind. And it was a bipartisan decision. It wasn't one party versus another party. And you talk about this in this book, about how important it was to have that bipartisanship and how dangerous it was when environmental groups start to only back one party. Uh, and is that something that you see? You just, you just came back from the USA, you toured Resist, um, post-Trump America. Uh, is this something that you're seeing on an increasing scale of the huge focus on our differences rather than our commons? Is this something that, is, that strikes you and concerns you? Uh, and do you have any idea of how we might bridge these gaps? Uh, yeah, as, um, as traders like to say, 110%. You know? <laughs> Really, 100%. <laughs> no, that's... I, I couldn't have said... It, it does. And, uh, and to address the question more seriously, let me take another example for us in this discussion. And it's one which some of you, doubtless, will be following some more closely than others. And I know it's been an important part of this wonderful festival, recognition of um, prior occupation and ownership of this land by Aboriginal people. And the possibility that we'll have a referendum and a voice to parliament and a Macarata and the like. And traditionally in Australia, we tend to think that we're not good at referendums because some referendums have failed. That's not exactly true. We are pretty good at referendums so long as we find common ground and think and feel the merits of the argument that has led a referendum question to be put to you. So if Dutton opposes the voice to Parliament and all the Liberal parties and National parties then fall in behind and oppose the voice to Parliament, it's going to be quite difficult to get it through, even though at the moment we have 67% or 68% of people in favour. And that's just an illustration that we all don't think the same, literally about every aspect of politics, and some of us fall on different sides. And if you really want to affect powerful change, you have to be able to bring people along with you and you have to be able to talk to people who don't share your views completely. And I am... I mean, I'm optimistic about humanity's capacity to resolve wicked problems and to see betterment for us over the longer haul. Sometimes in the short term, it's not so easy to see. So you're talking to an optimist by nature. But I am, on the basis of your question... And us, just having come back from the States, we've done two big runs there over the last four and a half years, deeply worried uh, about the prospects of there even being an American democracy because of this very question. Left and the right will not, cannot talk to one another. Um, the right have also decided to forego truth and embrace violence. And the left have decided to embrace sanctimony um, and not so much advance identity politics, because that's a separate question, but get caught in not understanding what the real issues are that have led many Americans to vote for a figure that to most people outside of America looks like an absolute clown, dangerous clown or whatever, Trump. So why are working people, why are college students, why are church-going people voting for this figure and not for, for, for the Democrats? And uh, the Democrats of today still aren't wrestling with that question. So when you can't talk to the people that you want to form and build a country with, the country's going to fall apart. Absolutely. And when you entered politics in Parliament, that was largely one of the reasons why people wanted you there. So you could bring the working class with you. You could bring these sort of outliers back into the party's sort of bumping heart. Is that right? <coughs> Um, I'm not sure about the working class. I think that um, some people thought that there'd be a voice, a youth, a voice for, let's just call it youth policy and youth issues. Mm. You know, cheap surfboards and free beer. <laughs> um, that there'd be a voice for environment issues. Mm. That there'd be a greener 
perspective within the Labor Party itself. I mean, I went into the Parliament because I was so appalled um, at Howard's particular leadership on climate. That's, that was primarily the reason that I came in. I mean, I had the opportunity to enter the Parliament, and I took it. But that was my primary motivation. And I think that I knew, probably better than many people that were following it closely, that that would necessitate the disciplines of being in a party and being a team player. And that there, if there were parts of the policy of that party, which later became a government, that were at odds with what I felt like, I wasn't going to tell Rupert Murdoch that. I tell my colleagues behind closed doors and just cop the hits. But I don't think it was about the representation for working people. And my, the reason I say that is not that it's not important to me and not that it's not important to um, political figures in the parliament, but the reason I say that is that at that point in time, with some blips in the landscape and with the clear exception of Indigenous Australians, those people who've been essentially locked into what we might describe as our as an underclass of unfulfilled people and recently arrived migrants or refugees, with the exceptions of those categories, we have never experienced so much prosperity. I know that doesn't apply to each and every single person in this room, but when you look at the macro figures, nationally, statistically, in every state in the parliament, with the exception of Tasmania, until Mona got going, um, Australians were better off, healthier, greater life expectancy, more disposable income than they had ever had. Bar none. I mean, the fact that we were plundering the planet to get there and holding down wages to get there and so on and so forth, they're important issues, but it wasn't about where workers were at. And we can see this very clearly, again, in, in the States, but also in our own politics, where really we do have adults. I mean, I know that's my, my side, but we do have adults in the parliament. Um, and with the United Kingdom, they didn't have adults in the parliament. Um, and Trust became uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for, what, 40 days or whatever it was, 39 days, because what was being proposed was so far removed from the reality of the experience of working people in the United Kingdom that she, and then the markets happened to think it was fairy dust as well, she had no legs to stand on at all. If capital doesn't support you and working people don't support you, you, you can't operate. Whereas when I went into the Parliament here, the reforms of the Hawke and Keating years, and to an extent some of the reforms of the Howard years, whatever the, whatever the overall merits were, economically had worked, at least in the short term. And so people weren't craving, um, as it were, a working class revolution. They were just seeking either to preserve benefits, to advance benefits, and to elect governments that they thought would do the right thing for their kids, who they were hoping would actually live in a similar kind of world where they didn't have to worry as much as their parents have worried. Yeah, absolutely. And you write about, in, in this memoir, you write about this exceptional um, integrity. Uh, you were determined to maintain integrity with regard to process, uh, even if it meant not necessarily getting an outcome you desired. And I really I love this, but you write about how if you were to bend process to your will, you would degrade the entire democratic process. In, so you might get a short-term win, but overall you're devaluing the process to where we see America, where it's zero trust, negative trust. Uh, when you were in Parliament, did you feel like you were... I mean, how many people maintained that kind of integrity? How did you feel like there were other people who were respected the sense of process, even if outside Parliament um, you have observers sort of cajoling and jeering and saying, you've got to do this, you're meant to stand for this, why don't you do this? Yeah. Do you feel like there was that respect for process inside the building? Uh, yes, yeah, so for the most part I think the answer to that is yes. I did feel that that respect was inside the Parliament. Uh, it's a point that's not easily understood because of a range of complex things, some of which are cultural, some of which are knowledge-based, and some of which are practical politics. So on the cultural side, many of us are growing up in a cultural world where we don't have civic education, 
We have Google education and we have Hollywood punching stuff out constantly at us and we end up framing part of our world um, in that way and, and creators of, of content, whatever it might be, um, essentially are dealing with uh, the age-old narratives that, that you know, writers know and, and script writers and, uh, and, and thinkers know and those narratives have been going since the dawn of time. They're, partly explicit in Dreamtime stories. They're certainly totally explicit in what we might describe as you know, the whole bunch of stuff that we've all grown up reading and listening to. Um, the Greeks were on about it constantly. There are heroes, there are villains, there's redemption, and so on and so forth. Now, politics is so much messier than Greek myth, and it's so much messier than a Hollywood movie. So that's one part of the challenge. People are looking through the prism of politics, but they've absorbed all of this other <coughs> go get a culture, and they can't square the circle anymore. That's partly a problem of politics as well, and that has responsibility for it. The second is understanding processes in particular. And I mean, luckily, I'd been well taught um, as a lawyer, so I had good law teachers. I wasn't a great student. I was a bit on the slack side, and. You know, I was running around in bands and what have you, but enough of it stuck to me for me to realise that actually right underneath it there's a reason why we have these things and they do hold something together and they ought to properly treat every single person the same way. In other words, the law at its best would be like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in, in as much as we're all equal before the law. Now, we're not, of course, because unfortunately you need, a, you need deep pockets for some stuff. But for governments and rule of law, it's absolutely crucial. And that's what the, the Trump and um, Bolsonaro and um, you know, all of these other characters are just the best examples you'll ever see of that, as it has to be said, regrettably, are many developing countries uh, through Africa and, and, and Asia as well. They're not so much interested in the rule of law as they are in filling their pockets. So the rule of law just gets parked. Judges become appointed. Um, to do and say and come up with decisions that people like and so on and so forth. And in our system, as soon as someone goes for demography against institutionality, you're in trouble. Because if you go for demography, in other words, if you go for populism, telling people what they want to hear, for example, at a certain time, or what they like to hear, or what you think they'd like to hear, or suggest to them how they should feel against the strength of your institutions, every time you do that, you weaken an institution. Because eventually, the baying mob will come with its guillotines, or as it did in, in, on the Capitol in January 6th, you know, with its hand grenades and its things. That happened in the United States. It's still the wealthiest country in the world. It's still got the biggest standing armed forces. Washington police department's bigger than the whole of Victoria. There's no shortage of people that could stop those people doing that. But they were unable to because, because the voice of populism had decided that the rule of law didn't matter at all. So, yeah, I mean, I did my bit on the rule of law. And there's another part to it as well, and that is that you can't elect people into the parliament and expect them to pass good laws if they're prepared to ignore laws that are already made simply because they don't like what they say. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I'm glad you did the little symbol for money um, because I was quite interested in, um, you know, last week I was in the supermarket pushing my trolley and um, uh, the beds of burning came on. People started to move. People, people started to move a little with their trolley. I ran for the exit. <laughs> and put stuff into the trolley. Um, and I, I, you know, I pondered, I was like, so what, how, what do you do, how we keep, how, what do you do when the passion meets the banal, or the passion meets uh, capitalism? And you write about um, when you were running for the Senate under the Nuclear, nuclear Disarmament Party. Oh, so which incidentally, I wasn't a co-founder of at oh. the very beginning, but in the New South Wales, when it came to New South Wales, uh, right. me and some others, with Patrick White, actually, the novelist. Oh. Yeah, wow. yeah, I know. That's a nice side story. You didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> what was he like? He was pretty curmudgeonly. Yeah, right. 
I mean, did anyone ever, or certain generation, I don't know if people read Patrick White under 40 or we're tall now, but did, did anyone ever get through Voss? Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a great thing on the tombstone, no? Curmudgeonly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned when you were running for the Senate under that, that party, um, you sort of had the, the, the Socialist Party, and they were running this agenda, which was not nuclear disarmament, it was anti-capitalism. It was how do we bring down capitalism. And I, I'm, I'm curious as to, and you write about how that was not what you were there for, you were there to um, disarm nuclear, basically. Uh, and I'm interested on your thoughts about capitalism and whether it is an innately toxic concept, whether it can be made democratic, whether it can be made ethical. Can, can we protect the planet? Can we do what needs to be done under a capitalist society? Uh, not in its current form, we can't. And yet we don't have, despite the best thinking of people with way more skills and expertise than I have, um, an alternative that's plausible and workable. So where that leads people like me to, at least, is... Okay, if that's where we are right now, we're at modif modification of capitalism. And can it be modified in such a way to reflect some of the things that are in your question, Anna? I think it can be, but I think the only forces that can do that happen to be governments acting in concert. And the best example of that that we have at the moment are the fossil fuel industries, uh, what they're doing, the profits that they're making, uh, and the lack of real... Um, effective regulation on them. There's one other thing about capitalism which is a bit challenging, and that is when we say capitalism, are we talking about it to sort of define the terms answer, which we shouldn't get into on a Sunday afternoon at a rice festival, but uh, let's just cook. No, I, do, I think... do. Just, ultimately, we're very studious, boring people. <laughs> That's a club I want to be in. <laughs> So I think the idea that you should provide the freedom of opportunity and space for people to make of their world what they will by their own merits, by their own capacities and skills, um, I find that to be a very liberating idea. And having been in truly socialist countries, uh, which is sort of a little bit like a Victorian local government left-leaning local government council area, but they're running a country. You'll know what I mean. <laughs> um, that being said, capitalism is devouring the planet, and it's also imposing, you know, quite horrendous cruelties on human populations on a large scale. And whilst there's a really big debate amongst the people that I do follow and read boringly, about overall standard of living increases and development indexes and so on and so forth. I think the jury's in on neoliberal economics working up to a point and then failing. That's how do we how do we manage the failure? When it comes to looking a little bit more seriously at that environment side of it in your question, then I think capitalism is really in the spotlight and it's got a big target on it and we need to really have a crack at it. Because this idea of perpetual infinite growth, which runs a system from which we derive surplus value and profits and then that flows down to people. Well, firstly, rich and rich people are getting richer and richer. And secondly, but actually firstly, we're doing unbelievable amounts of damage to the world, to the natural world, and shows no signs of abatement, which is terrifying, really. So it needs major surgery. But what form that takes, I don't have the wisdom to propose. So, I mean, it's one of the things I've been grappling with. And, uh, you know, there's this big push. We've got to, you know, move out of fossil fuels into renewables. But there, there is a cycle here, isn't there? There's the DDT cycle. There's the, um, the aerosols and the ozone hole cycle. There's the leave fossil fuels behind, go to renewables. Are we, will we just jump into another destructive cycle? And is that when... So, I mean, I think often we talk about a climate change crisis and then we have this separate crisis of biodiversity as opposed to saying they're one and the same. And is that, is that essentially... I mean, your work in Parliament was to try and make 
legislation strong enough to make those two things one and one the same? Is that something that you feel, what kind of, what else needs to be done to make that legislation plant first, basically? Yeah, great question. So I think, uh, actually, um, Christiane Figueroa, who used to be the head of the UNFCCC, has just written quite a good article in The Guardian. I don't know when anyone's seen it, uh, but I commend The Guardian for its position on climate, particularly, not necessarily the cultural lifestyle thing, you know, ten things I had about whatever, but the other stuff. Um, you don't need my critiques of The Guardian, not as The Guardian. But she says that we've got the technical mean, this is on biodiversity. So there's two conferences of the parties happening this year. The international agreements that are meant to advance the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and are meant to increase the protection of biodiversity, linked, um, as Anna says. One is the Climate COP, and the other one is the Biodiversity Conference of the Parties, all of the countries getting together, sorry. Uh, so she writes something which I entirely agree with, which is that we've got the technical means to solve the problem, and we have the financial resources to solve the problem, but we haven't had the mindset shift. And that's exactly what it is. We haven't had the mindset shift. And I mean, that's my message to people, is that we can fix some of these terribly difficult, hard issues, and we can skill ourselves up and we can empower ourselves in doing that, but it does require our minds to shift and then to shift minds when we do it, to persuade people as we go. And that mindset shift hasn't taken place yet. And there's no better example than Elon Musk, you know. Yeah, but, you know, he's got a seven squillion... Twi- I don't want to get stuck with him, but he's got seven... Imagine being stuck in a lift with Elon Musk. But, you know, he's got seven million Twitter followers or whatever it might be, and he's, he's taken over the company. And Tesla, you know apart from the fact that it was done from subsidies from governments, very socialistic idea, uh, and they don't pay their workers very well, and so they don't have unions, so two black marks. But electric cars, one big black mark, a bit, one big tick, a bigger bun. But that mindset, that capitalistic mindset, particularly with people who've got vast amounts of money, very quickly jumps to this idea of, well, why not, you know, I'm going, to have a, I'm going to have a spaceship of my own. You know? I'm going to fly that spaceship somewhere and I'm going to buy whatever I find and we're going to turn that into another planet Earth, you know, where, but I can rule, which I can rule. There won't be any, you know, noisy, bureau, noisy bureaucrats or difficult politicians telling me what to do. You know, it's just an extraordinarily um, anthrocentric, arrogant, dumb scientifically illiterate, <laughs> selfish exercise, you know. How much is that going to cost? You know, do you think everyone will get back from, you know, Mars in one piece? Um, can we clean up the sewerage, you know, that's pouring out, you know, untreated of gutters in the city that you live in, for starters? Mm. Really? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what concerns me, is that you have this, this people, electric, guitar, electric cars... Electric guitars, obviously. We've got to have electric guitars. Um, electric cars, tick. And it feels a little bit to me a bit Orwellian, two legs good, four legs bad. Because if that mindset is what compels it, uh, which is what uh, we're always adjusting the capitalism market to compel to these ticks, how is it, is it really going to turn out to be good in the long run? Yeah, no, look, it's, it's absolutely spot on. So... The challenge is to embed the technological advances that will enable us to move to zero carbon, like the basically renewable energy economy, let's just call it that for simplicity purposes, which a lot of capitalists are very enthusiastic about because that's where they know, quite rightly, and some of them are putting up the money for it. They're going to make a lot of money. Let's do that. It has to be done, but at the same time, we must, we must bolt in from the ground. That happens partly locally, it partly happens through legislation, and it partly happens through mindset change. These other values that are necessary to provide people with decent, habitable futures. Yeah. With the mindset change, what comes first? Is it mindset change, then Parliament can start moving? Or is it Parliament can start legislating, and with that comes the mindset that 
changes? So I think the answer to that question is it depends very much on the nature and quality of leadership. So if you have visionary leadership in the parliament or someone, to use um, a former, former term of one of some of our favourite politicians, but a crazy brave who's prepared to take the jump, then the parliament can get it going, particularly if it's sought proper advice from the smartest people around to do it. Like, it's not doing it on a whim. Woke up in the morning, we need more bridges, okay, great, let's have more, you know, not like that. At the moment, um, and over the last 20 years probably, with some exceptions, maybe 25 years in this country and in most other countries, it's been driven from outside. So the people are the visionaries, and they organise, they campaign, non-government organisations, media gets on board, so on and so forth, and then the parliament starts to respond. Mm, And in terms of, because I think about these incredible environmental achievements that, you know, you were a part of in in your long career, um, and... At the moment, it seems, it's almost like, well, where does one put their energy, right? So, you know, Woodside on, on the western coast, you, you know, you've got the Galilee coal seam on the east coast. Uh, it's almost like there's a paralysis of, what do I throw my weight behind? And I guess it's because it's a bit like... Um, what's like whack-a-mole. Yeah, whack-a-mole. Yeah. So, uh, so how does... Do you think there is... A, a campaign, the, the idea of campaigning and getting behind a particular place is almost no longer relevant in the sense that it's, uh, you know, we can be cleaning up the rivers that are going into the GBR, but you know what, let's irrigate the Kimberley. So like, does the idea of pick a place throw as much energy as you can at it to protect it. Is that still something that needs... Is that still the process, or does the process need to be different now? Well, I think that process can work, and it can still work. It's worked in the past, and there's no reason why it can't work again today. And in our own, let's just call it modern history, modern sort of English arriving and nicking land history, um, most of the big environmental causes and issues that people would know about or the campaigns that have been successful have had that model, essentially. But I think in answering the question to the next thing I want to say, it's really important to look at what that model actually was or what that example was. I mean, I could pick the Franklin, I could pick the Great Barrier Reef, um, more recently I could pick some of the forest campaigns... And it's actually a number of things that more or less have to happen, not at exactly the same time, but contiguously. So generally speaking, not in my backyard, NIMBY is something is a badge we should wear with pride. Because if you don't care about what's happening in your own backyard, then uh, okay. And our expectation ought to be that we will defend to the very best of our ability and our being something that we can see happening down the road here, which I know people here would do. So you do need that local ownership and involvement and understanding of an issue. Then you need knowledge, the science, and we've got lots of that now, whether it's citizen science, which is fantastic in Australia, or formal science, slightly compromised by the Tories, but still there. Then you need political campaigning, the the hard graft of knocking on doors and doing things in shopping centres and nowadays social media aspect as well, both to build your numbers and also to start applying pressure to your local members of parliament and the like. And then, depending on what it is, and if it's, say, something like the Kimberley, which is very dear to my heart, even though I don't live there, we need to advance it to a national and an international campaign by capturing people's imagination and informing them about what's going on and hoping, and not hoping, but then sort of pursuing the change. There's a really interesting dynamic in this, which I don't understand fully myself, because I've been on the road and doing a lot of music over the last couple of years, but I think there's much more activism of a kind than there's ever been. But I'm not sure whether the 
measurements and the metrics have been done on it to figure out it, how effective it is. I can't, others have better place, you may have a better view on that than me, and I'm very happy to ask you what you think. <laughs> no, seriously. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't either, but. That's a good question, and I'll, I'll investigate and I'll get back to you. <laughs> Um, I have one more question before we need to throw it out to the audience. Um, a journalist again, Brett Evans, wrote this piece that I think is really interesting. Um, Rise of politics made Peter human, uh, as, as he was a distant observer, and you risk that sort of St. Peter image, you know, that sort of, I'm on the, the good side of history. Um, and you went into politics, and you compromised, and sometimes you failed, and sometimes you succeeded, and it made you human um, to observers. I mean, I'm sure you've always been human. Uh, but do you get that sense when you now that you've come through that churn, you've come through that time, which was um, clearly intense, clearly very satisfying, it's fine in some parts, devastating, troubling in others. Do you feel like it has? Um, revealed more aspects of yourself to you. To myself? To yourself. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> so I think the short answer to that uh, is probably no. Mm. Maybe a couple. I mean, I, I do inhabit a slightly strange world in as, as I am, have, have been a very sort of visible public figure for a long time. Mm. And so people come to a view and have reached a view about you not knowing you, but only from what they've seen. Or maybe they came to a show, or maybe they saw that you joined the Labour Party, or what have you. Uh, and I think that one of the... Well, one of the frustrating things about being in the Parliament wasn't being a parliamentarian and then being a minister. I mean, I was a Cabinet Minister for six years. So it's an incredible privilege. I ended up as Education Minister of the Nation and you know, had a national curriculum and all sorts of things and worked closely with Prime Minister Gillard at the time. It was a real high point for me in my life. However... Because I was almost a caricature figure, um, and certainly the conservative press were at pains to continue using that caricature, a lot of the things that we did do, particularly in environment, which I know you've written a book, and if anyone has, you'll get a, you know, there's a boring list, but they're good things. Uh, no, no one ever really knew about or didn't know much about. And uh, so, you, you know, I, 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 one thing I learned about myself is that I can be a little bit competitive. <laughs> I'm just looking at my wife, Doris, who's come with me tonight. Nodding. 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 <laughs> no board games. <laughs> um, let's throw it up to the audience. Any questions? Hello, my name, dare I say, is Karen. Um... That's perfect. <laughs> For those who were here yesterday hearing Evelyn bag the Karen. Um... <laughs> My question is around, you said about visionary government and government doing things. Jim Chalmers is proposing and supposedly going to be linking um, future budget expenditure to social outcomes. Wellbeing. Wellbeing. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder what you think of that and also maybe the idea of this uh, all public companies having to report against the triple bottom line which includes environmental and social um, impact as well as financial performance. Thanks. Oh, yeah, so thanks, Karen. Um, on the first, I think a wellbeing budget is a really good idea, even though some of the things are not is it exactly measured as, say, you know, rainfall. Uh, it actually was a process that started when Wayne Swan um, was Treasurer and when I was Environment Minister, because we wanted to see... Um, what the impact of the budget was actually on biodiversity and community health, particularly um, in remote communities. So I think it's a good idea and I think it informs us and good information, which isn't just narrow data casting of, you know, the price of gold today is a step in the right direction. Uh, your second question can get a really long and boring answer for me about um, triple bottom line reporting and whether it's worthwhile and so on and so forth. And some people will probably got into this in some way. It still is worthwhile and should be done by all companies, not even just big companies, but it requires much more rigorous 
conditioning and reporting and evaluation than we've had up to now. And underneath that, from what Anna and I were talking about, it requires the mindset change. In their case, goodwill. And I can give you a classic example. I won't name the bank, but one of the banks parades itself as having great triple bottom line reporting. And it's true that their triple bottom line reporting is better than the other banks, but that's all it is. And they've only looked at it from the point of view is, what is the most we can do to be the best, not what is the most we can really do to be the absolute best, not just better than our competitors. Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, I want to agree with Sonia that your lyrics have left an incredible legacy from the Royal. Well, it may not be just my lyrics, by the way. Yeah, I don't feel that little ages. But on a whole generation of you know people right up to the fifties, like me, um, we're really awoke a sort of social justice thing, which is sort of like compound interest, because you know. Here were these 17-year-old rat bags and they turned into 55-year-old people running the world at some point, you know. So um, my question is regarding your comments around non-self-referential art and art, you know, whether that's music or whatever. Do, do you think, as far as you know, at the moment, that that same sort of level of inspiration is out there? I know our arts community in Australia's had a lot of bumpy times, but, but, you know, it seems to me, a very distant, older perspective, that there, a lot of the music is still very self-referential or narrow. Um, I wonder if you can comment on that. Um, thanks, Grant, and great to see you as well from way back in the day. So, look, I think, I th- I think my, my earliest comments about the band were one which is a, really a comment about... Um, Happenstance, luck, circumstance, and then recognition, discipline and work. So we were lucky to get the combination of people in the band that we got. Three songwriters, two very fine songwriters. People who thought deeply about issues and had a gift for putting those things or bringing them through to us. And then we had the gifts for making it into something which became a rock song, but still had this substance to it. And it's great to hear, and I do hear from people as well, and, and you know, it's, it's obviously a great privilege and um, a, a fine thing to hear from someone who says, oh, well, when I was 16 or 17 and I was jumping around in a pub, I didn't really understand, you know, what give it back. I just went, give it back. <laughs> now I understand what it really means. <laughs> Which is the idea. But the point I was trying to make earlier on was that we weren't getting up in front of our audience of the day and saying... Aboriginal land rights is, is, you know, if if you're not on board about this, you're just not cool, you know. So if people get it, and whenever they get it, that's great. On arts and separential arts, well, I was a federal arts minister and probably one of the few artists that I met in arts organisations who had ever succeeded in the arts um, and who'd done it without taking any money, not that we believed that we were entitled to it, and we weren't. We shouldn't have, from anyone, to do what we did. So I always had to be very cautious, and I had to think through really clearly my own prejudices, as well as the genuine need that we have to feed the artistic ecosystem. So that's the first point. And then... In relation to your question about self-referential, simply accept if we value the arts at all and we think that a great book, a great poem, a great video installation, digital installation, a great bit of provocative theatre which we saw last night, if any of it is to feed us, then we have to accept all of it. Whether we like it or not, whether we think that it's just doing loop-the-loops, whether we think it's terribly ego-centred or very faddish, which the arts is, constantly people chasing after fads, like the business I'm in. But if artists are going to stand up and say, I care a lot about X, then they have to walk the talk. They just can't talk the talk, because we're all good at talking the talk, but we have to walk it. 
hello, my name is Emma. Um, I've got a question for myself and my son Benjamin. So we've been activists for quite many, many years and um, we just wanted to know how... We found it really hard to engage more people in the campaigns we are doing, so I think a lot of people are very happy to say they do care, but then to actually do the step like you're saying, to actually do the, you know, um, live the talk instead of just doing the talk, uh, we found it really hard to engage people to actually take action. And I was just wondering, um, being an activist for a long time, how did you keep the momentum and how would you engage people to actually really take serious action for a long period of time? So what sort of campaigning is it, Emma? Uh, we've done, well, at the moment, we're doing the Move Beyond Coal and also the um, uh, with the Thai Karma Bob Brown. We've done many, many, many different with Stopadani as well. But, um, yeah, we just wanted to try to get more people involved. Like, at the moment, another question I wanted to ask as well is, uh, what do you think of the um, Divest campaign for people to, you know, move their bank in a bank that actually does... You know, does not yeah. invest in fossil fuels and the superannuation as well. So that's my other question. Thank you. So I can't really um, give you a totally thorough answer to the first part of your question because I don't know fully your organisational strengths or how many people are involved or whatever. My general comment would be it sounds as though you're working on things that other people are working on, including both local, state and national conservation or other organisations. And so I would be aiming to work a bit more closely with them, specifically, and maybe even inviting them to partner with you in something where they don't have to give you money, necessarily, but simply you can agree on a campaign goal or take some of their material. Because in the coal and climate space, as they say, there's a lot of information and material out there. And we wish you well with that. Uh, on divestment, it's a great campaign that's been run. Uh, runs internationally, uh, runs through um, some very sophisticated investor networks, many younger, well, I'm probably the oldest person in the room, but many younger people coming through who are in business, in, in a sort of new form of climate-aware capitalism, and realise that um, one very quick way of getting some action are divestment campaigns that don't always work. But a divestment campaign on Shell, for example, which I think is probably in the offing, would do the world a huge favour. There's a gentleman down here with a check shirt. Peter, um, a lot of people graduate to the Labor Party because of the principles, because of ethics and decency. But in 2013, the Parliamentary Party rewarded treachery when they brought back, uh, brought back Kevin Rudd. What was it like at that time? And how did... <laughs> Uh, it has to be, this is a good question. <laughs> How did you feel about a, a, what could have been a really great Prime Minister being undermined by Kevin Wright? I thought it was a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, it, it, it's, it's an utterly legitimate and good question, and some of that is addressed in, um, in the book that I wrote when I left the Parliament. And one of the things that I did commit myself to do when I left was not to uh, spend a great deal of time disparaging my forebears or people who I'd worked with, even those who I disagreed with. And as most people here will know, I did, did disagree pretty profoundly with Kevin on a number of issues, and that would have been one of them. Uh, and I respected Julia a great deal, and I thought she got a terrible, ter terrible go of it. Not within the party specifically, though, in a way, which I'll just quickly explain, um, even though it's true that um, Mr Rudd mounted a campaign uh, against the then sitting... Well, the leader of the Labor Party is essentially what, what, it count, what it counts for, and persuaded a majority of members of caucus to support him. And that, that in itself was a democratic process. Now, I didn't, I didn't put my hand up for that vote. And as I recall in the book, um, no sooner had the vote taken place than... I thought very generously. Uh, Kevin and, and Anthony Albanese came and said we, we would like you to stay and stay in those roles and, and, and continue to do that work. And I chose not to, as did some others. Um, Combe, Smith, Emerson and Roxon. You all know their first names, or some of them. But what was the biggest, for me, and difficult time in giving you a reflection was the role that some members, not all, but some members of the media played. 
and I'm talking mainly about the Canberra media, not only News Corp, but the ABC, um, Fairfax and others, and not and women as well as men, without any shadow of a doubt, who essentially acted as willing partners in the fomenting of the campaign against Julia. That campaign never would have carried the day if they hadn't whipped up such a frenzy on the basis of speculation, you know, the normal stuff, you know. We've got an opinion poll that says, you know, Julie Gillard's less popular on such and such and so on and so forth. I mean, this is all standing operating procedure 101 for people like myself who've worked politically and who are in that world. There's nothing exceptional or evil or nasty about it. This is just what happens. It's the role that was played by the fourth estate particularly some leading members of the Fourth Estate, which contributed greatly both to that campaign succeeding and, and to Julia um, being, being subsumed by, by Kevin. Now, what's interesting in history, I think both leaders in history are showing themselves, are showing the best of themselves, are showing the great qualities that they have, are showing the smarts that they have, and certainly, not only for women, but clearly for women, and understandably, but for many of us, you know, Julia's work subsequent to that has been a vindication of the leader that she was when she was Prime Minister. But she was brought down, in part, by the gallery running confection. And for me, that's what I took away from the process. Hi, I'm Rebecca. Um Thank you for being here um, in my hometown. I'm very grateful for it. Um, following on the fourth estate stuff, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are and what will happen when Rupert Murdoch finally falls off the perch. No, I have no idea. I know that um, a journalist, Paddy Manning, who I, I don't know him personally, but, I, but I, I've met him. I know he's written a book about uh, the Murdoch family. We watched a bit of Succession at, at home. We haven't watched the whole thing. The answer's in there somewhere. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I've got Penny Manning's book as well, yet to be read, but I think he might have the answers for it. Ask me a question. Oh, so I need to ask a question here. <laughs> about the crisis, which is obviously upon us more and more regularly, about fire. Yeah, thanks, so we... Um... <laughs> At last. <laughs> we came down last night and uh, had a chance to hear um, the play reading. Some of you, many of you may have been there. It was a very moving night. And um, would have resonated very strongly with this community, but, but would have resonated, I think, for many, many other people including my wife and I. Uh, so we are outside of Sydney, and so we experienced the big Carowin fire only two and a half years ago, not directly, and, and we were fine, but through our community and otherwise. And, uh, and also um, the Maryville's fires and so on I was involved in when I was in the government have been in this. You see the totality, I suppose. Is, is, it's not the best word I can find, but the massive totality and sort of... It's, it's, this, it's a shape-shifting experience for people and for landscapes. And we've really got a big battle on our hands reducing these emissions and better preparing ourselves in the meantime. And I know this community is quite focused on that. But this is a total coincidence because I wasn't going to be speaking here at this time. But a colleague of mine, actually, um, from back in the day at ACF, has written a book called Fire, uh, A Message from the Edge of Climate Catastrophe. Her name's Margie Prideau, and she was actually a marine biologist by training and she and her husband ended up on Kangaroo Island and so this is a reflection of what happened on Kangaroo Island. The reason that I'm holding it up isn't to sort of flog it at a writer's festival, although I do strongly, <laughs> I, I, to be honest I don't even know if it's yet publicly available because uh, she sent me a, a, a copy because I wrote the forward for her, but simply to say keep an eye out for it but at the same time it illustrates something which I think goes to the heart of some of the questions that Anna's been asking and some of the answers that I've been attempting to give which is that she responds to what happened viscerally and emotionally, as she must do, her and her partner. And the community is devastated. And then they have to engage with 
you know, local governments that clean up, um, insurance companies and all of that difficult work. But then they need to think about, and she believes very strongly, as I do, you then need to think about, well, what can we do in the future? Literally, which is on the ground, practical, um, maybe brave steps and actions to better prepare us and, and to combat something like this ever happening again. And she does that thinking, and she, she brings it in at the end of the book. So whilst it's quite poetic and quite moving, it's also very practical. And I think that for me... Um, the great thing that humans have is we have the, we, we, we all have it. We have the ability to think um, and hope and imagine something that's better. There's a bit of a crisis of imagination going on at the moment, but not entirely, and certainly our creatives do it all the time. We have that capacity for the imagination. What we find hard is the practical stuff, the doing, because it is hard. It's hard labour, it's organisation, it's boring, it's relentless, and occasionally, very occasionally, you feel like you've taken two steps back instead of one step forward. When you reach a point of understanding that actually this is how it works and this is how it's always worked, seems a bit harder now, but we will be able to do it, then in your own space and in your own way, my experience is, you can find the opportunity to have a go at it. So I commend that book to you, and Anna, thank you very much for that interview. <laughs> and a question. Thank you, Peter. Obviously, you've given me a lot to think about, a lot to research as well. I'll get back to you. Um, thank you for this amazing festival and opportunity. Uh, thank you, Sonia. Thank you. You've been listening to Anna Crean in conversation with Peter Garrett. This event was presented in partnership with Mountain Writers Festival. It was recorded Sunday 6th of November 2022 at Jubilee Hall, Macedon, and was part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.